0: And welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett-Karnak.
1: I'm Cristiano Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week,
0: we discuss Republicans and climate change, faith and climate change, and big news for climate philanthropy. We speak to Vicky Holub, CEO of Texas oil and gas giant Occidental Petroleum. And we have music from Alex Serra. Thanks for being here. So guys back to normal delivery now this week no race to zero we're back to just your day-to-day outrage and optimism we're thrilled you stayed with us everyone hope you enjoyed it but uh we're back to normal service how are you guys doing it a good week
2: it's not it's not any less exciting tom <laughs> you're saying back to normal honestly there is no normal Paul looks it's a little downcast on steroids everything is on steroids <laughs> right now
1: a friend of mine said that you you spend all your time trying to like think of is this happening and then is that happening and then we're going to get back to normal. But there is no back to normal. Uh, we, this is the one thing we've learned that change is the eternal present and we should always be ready for it and grow.
2: Thank you, Philosopher Dickinson. All right,
1: well, the next time we put a mini-series in, we're gonna to have to this the music
0: is just gonna to have to be basically boom 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 in order to just keep the, the tempo going up again. Right, okay, so um as we set out a few weeks ago, um we are going to dive in to some key issues that are coming up in climate change at the moment. We can't cover everything in these podcasts. There's so much going on, and that's a good thing. Plenty of reason for both outrage and optimism, but we're all gonna sort of dive into the things that have most caught our eye in the the last week on climate change, and this week we're going to start with you, Mr. Paul Dickinson. Oh,
1: really? Okay. Well, um, I'm just going to tell you a little story that uh, in in my in my not very illustrious career, but I was once uh, at a, a very fancy lunch uh, with a with a famous billionaire, and um, he 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 started off the conversation. We all these people around the table, and he said, "We must have taxation and regulation, uh, or else nothing will change." And there was a bit of a pause and then he repeated himself and said, we must have taxation and regulation or nothing will change. And then there was a bit more of a pause because everyone was surprised he repeated himself. And then for a third time he said, we must have taxation and regulation (laughs) or else nothing will really change. But I just, before I tell you about the rest of my story, do you agree with that, Cristiano and Tom? Um...
2: Well, I, I would say among other things, yes. I mean, there is no one, you know, truth and one instrument that uh, can account for everything in transformation. But yes, very strongly. I, Not I would, the only instrument.
0: I would rephrase it. I would say when things change, we will have
1: taxation and regulation. That's sort of so clever. I don't think it makes sense. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so like, here's the point of my story. Mitch Romney, we've all heard of him. He's the famous senator with a kind of conscience. No, it's not the right thing to say. But anyway, he's he's extremely uh, a credible human being and uh, ha- has taken a, a noble stance on many issues, I believe. And he actually was being interviewed by New York Times. And he said, he's talking about climate change. And he said, those things we tax, we get less of. And those things we subsidize, we get more of. And it's kind of that simple, right? I mean, as you both know, I've spent 20 years with a lot of other people getting corporations to account for their greenhouse gas emissions. And if there's a cost on them, and if it's high enough, we have all the maths ready to go. Everything will just change. It'll all just change. I just think it's so simple. Um, a former chair of Shell, because we're talking to Vicky Hollab from, from from Occidental later, a former chair of Shell, Mark Ministup, in 2019, I think, said it was essential to have a realistic price on carbon emissions. He was asking why Extinction Rebellion were not backing $100 a ton. So I just think this is the critical thing. And I wonder about the whole race to zero. Is it about putting this into law, get those prices, and we'll just get the change done and and we'll we'll be safe again? I'm just wondering if it's that simple.
2: Well, it's that simple if you could get everyone to agree. But we know the big T word is a very difficult word for everyone to agree to. Now, what is um, actually very good news is that in the United States, some some of the Republicans are beginning to move over to putting a price on carbon. As we know, we can put it several ways, but taxing pollution, uh, which is what carbon is, it's both local and uh, and global pollution. Taxing pollution just makes an extraordinary amount of sense because you do put a higher price or you tax those things that you don't want, as you said very clearly at the very beginning.
0: I think, I mean, I, you know, of course you're right, Paul. And you've, you know, just there's this little switch down here and if we flick it, everything will be fine. Um, but I think the truth is, of course, that we've known that for a long time, right? That If we flick that switch, then, then we can actually recalibrate the economy around the things we want and get rid of the things we don't want. But it's, you know, it continues to be, incredibly hard to do that. I mean, I think it's amazing that Mitt Romney is actually stepping up. It's a thin list of Republicans that are doing that. I was having a chat today with someone in the US who's closely involved in the construction of what will become the kind of package of legislative measures to deal with climate. And 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 they said that actually um, what that's going to be, right, is a Build Back Better bill at some point. And the reason for that is because um, they still can't, they can't name something like a carbon tax on the bill and have any chance of getting it through, even when both houses are controlled by the Democrats. So so you're right. And it's great that Mitt Romney is stepping up. But it's also appalling and a cause for significant outrage that today, when the crisis has gotten so bad, you still can't put on the Tim what it's supposed to do in the US in order to get the bill through, because it will just be dead on arrival.
1: Well, I mean, just to kind of close on this from my side, I, I, I kind of think, yeah, people are talking about tax and dividend. I mean, you know, tax is not such a terrible word. You know, who do you think pays for the Pentagon? I mean, people in the US love their armed forces. You know, it's not like these aircraft carriers and the the the, the planes and all the troops and all the tanks and all the submarines. You know, they didn't just Father Christmas or Mother Christmas didn't deliver them, you know. They were paid for with and tax. And they
2: don't come for free, right?
1: They do not <laughs> come for free. Now, I actually think, you know, probably we were talking about this before, good time to spend some of the military budget Respond to climate change. But the point is, with the tax and dividend, you know, the, the money doesn't even have to go to the government. The money just comes in from the carbon tax, and it goes out as a dividend to the people. Yeah. Uh, particularly poor people will be able to, to pay and respond. It, you know, it should be a wealth transfer, basically, from the rich who use more carbon to the poor who who use less carbon. And it's so simple. You know, all this investment, all these new technologies we need, all this research and development, it all just gets paid for, and we're good. And I, I just think, you know, we've got to kind of remember that that's maybe a heart, the heart of what we should be persuading governments to do in the race to zero. I mean...
3: <laughs> I'm looking oh, at Christiana so because she's,
1: she's got a quizzical face and uh, and I know she knows so much more about this than me, so I'm just kind of a little nervous, that's all.
2: No, I'm I'm delighted by your passion around that one, Paul.
0: Paul Christiana's been around the traps with this one for a few decades. A few decades. Um, okay. The only thing... Okay. I- the only thing I would just add just to that is that is, is what it demonstrates to me, apart from the else, what Mitt Romney did and the fact that he came out and talked about this, is just how much I miss thoughtful dialogue across the mm. aisle and with different oh, political yeah. perspectives on this, right? I mean, if we can all just agree, this is a crisis, we've got to do something about it, we've got to do it urgently. I'm totally up for, you know, fiscally conservative policies that can have a go at this and liberal policies and government intervention and stimulate the market. That's the discussion we should be having. That's a really intellectually interesting conversation. I don't feel ideologically wedded to either side. I'm ideologically wedded to science. But then finding solutions within that definition, and I just miss that because at the Mm. moment it feels like, particularly the US, which dominates so much of the narrative, either you agree in science and therefore you have one policy answer or you just kind of don't agree with the science and don't really have any answers, which is ridiculous.
2: I'm going to riff off of Paul Dickinson, who mentioned Extinction Rebellion, because um, in my attempt here to change the decibel of this conversation, I wanted to share with you that just a few days ago, Gail Bradbrook, the founder of Extinction Rebellion, and I uh, joined... A Plum Village activist retreat. Now Plum Village is the main monastery of Thich Nhat Hanh, a uh, Buddhist Zen master, and I was so impressed that um, as we participated in this activist retreat, first of all it is all obviously by Zoom, not in person, which is what we're used to doing uh, in retreats at Plum Village. They had 800 people online. And what it told me was the thirst that all of us who are working on climate change have for both working out there, right? With the kinds of topics that you were talking about, but also trying to answer the question, how do we regenerate ourselves? How do we remain passionately engaged as the two of you have just demonstrated? But without depleting ourselves, because if we don't tend to that, we just end up empty vessels, empty in our heart, empty in our soul, empty in our brain, um, and we just empty ourselves. And I was so impressed by the thoughtfulness, and that was the word that you used, um, Tom, how thoughtful, how you miss thoughtful conversations. What a thoughtful person Gail Bradbrook is. We had a conversation, the two of us, with Fabline, who is one of the um, leading monks at Plum Village. And I was just, again, we've had Gail on this podcast, but I was just so impressed by a woman who is passionately engaged on these issues, as we know, but also very, very aware of the fact that she and all of us need to take time and intent and intentionality to regenerate ourselves, and I was just, you know, bowled over by her depth and um, and the yeah and the, the profound um, thinking that she puts in there, which leads me to um, give a shout out there to faith groups who are uh, calling today for rise for climate justice, and how fantastic is it that now five to six years after um, the Paris Agreement, this is now pretty well established. This is, that controversy that we had before 2015 between those who believe in creation and those who believe in evolution, that has actually, not for everyone, but substantially, we have resolved that by agreeing that we all have a responsibility to care for our home planet. And that is where so many faith and spiritual communities are um, actually so deeply rooted in to call for that awareness, as well as in this case, for climate justice, um, for everyone who will be so negatively impacted by climate. So Yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to Gail, to Plum Village, to Rise for Climate Justice, to that whole piece of thinking that, um, you know, all of us, we don't take enough time to acknowledge um, and and really be um, in tune with that other kind of energy because we tend to spend a lot of time in the excited energy. And, you know, the three of us can get yes, really yes, excited. Yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> yes, we can. But um, but there's also this other piece of, of energy that is necessary in order to continue in the mission.
0: Yeah. I I so agree with you. And, and thank you for for raising that. I mean, I think that, and that's such a cause for optimism that those things are kind of integrating. And they've been doing it for a while, right? All the way back to 2015 and Tessa yeah. Tenant and our voices. But and and also on Gail, I mean, I think that I don't know if you guys, well, we went together, Christiana, to one of the Extinction Rebellion um rebellions in central London. I mean, obviously not so many happening recently. They felt so different to many previous activist engagements. They felt joyful. And I think much of that was Gail brought a really different vibe. I mean, obviously she would mm. say it's decentralized, okay. lots of leaders, but she kind of set a tone in how she thought about that and presented it. And and when that then gets manifest, I think it really it's it's directly connected to the effectiveness of the action, the quality of the engagement. And you really see that in her. And and I and I, yeah. I really hope that now this kind of engagement more with faith and climate can take that to the next level because it just feels like
1: it's such rich ground. Mm. Yeah. I mean the the the, the genius, if you will, of r- religious thinking is it's holistic thinking. I mean, I, I was brought up in an atheist household, right? But I mean, religious people, they don't have the perspective of an economist or a politician or a negotiator or a business person or an investor. You know, the religions are interested in all living things, you know, both present and future. And, and for better or for worse, religions are sort of brave enough to question actual human purpose. And you know, I think there are real issues about you know rich people hoarding money and commercial individualism kind of causing us harms against each other. You know, and and you know other living creatures. And um, yeah, it's, it's 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 as an as a, as someone who doesn't have faith, I still. Um, sort of treasure um, th- that holistic comprehension, which I think the Enlightenment yeah. world has, has you know, taken away from us. I make this joke. You know, we learn more and more about less and less, and now we know everything about nothing. You know, and and we can we can help learn from the religions a little bit about kind of you know. The, the 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 sort of eternal truths which to your point christiana can can help nourish us because i totally know what you mean about that kind of frantic i mean we last week it was the race to zero and it's probably not so easy to say exactly <laughs> it's probably not so easy to say awareness of the concept of zero but they're both important
4: yeah
1: um, um, um let's do one together tom uh, Ready? Um, 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 beautiful Beautiful. See, we don't do yeah.
0: that enough. <laughs> All right. So we okay, have had. Tom. We've had two very good reasons for it. Well, Paul was a little optimistic, a little outrage, you know, optimistic about Republicans. Outrage hasn't happened. Christiana, that was, I thought, deeply optimistic. And I have one uh, which is optimistic as well. And that is good. that good. our good friend, Andrew Steer, the CEO of the World Resource Institute, many of us have known him for many years, has been appointed by Jeff Bezos as the CEO of his Earth Fund. Now, mm. we, we have known, you know, we've sort of seen this one from multiple sides, of course, because we have a partnership with Amazon in creating the Climate Pledge. Christiana, you talk regularly to Jeff about, you know, the fact that he's engaging on climate and all these things. And this Earth Fund is a big deal, right? You know, it's $10 billion, which makes it the largest fund on climate by a significant margin, um, you know, to be spent over this decade, to be spent the critical,
2: yeah. decisive decade. A Absolutely, yeah.
0: Using just basic maths, time. Yeah, well, well, timescale not defined yet, but but short, right? And so I got that wrong, but I was just yeah. thinking like 10, 10, you know. About, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, sure. it may, maybe it will be, but who knows? Um, and I just think that the reason this is a real source of optimism for me is a few things. Number one, um, you know, there was a bit of sort of um, pushback that the Bezos Earth Fund wasn't bigger, but hey, ten billion is massive in making an impact on this Mm -hmm, issue mm -hmm. at this critical moment. Who knows where it will go next, but I think this could really be transformative. And the first round of grants that was 900 and something million, which has already gone out the door, um, we are already seeing having an impact. And secondly, where this goes now is going to be really important. And it requires a kind of stewardship of someone who understands the climate movement, knows how to be effective, but is also innovative. And it just strikes me, and Christiana, you should comment, you've been on the board of WRI for a long time, that Andrew is really that person. He's proved himself to be science-driven, practical, a deaf politician. And I think we will see a massive impact and a massive increase in action to deal with climate change, just as a result of this appointment, which is probably an appointment that most people listening to podcasts have never heard about, but it's going to be really impactful.
2: Yeah, we're very excited about Andrew's um, Andrew's uh, appointment there. Um, it's been a long time coming. Honestly, the, uh, you know, the, the, the power behind uh, the throne over there uh, has taken a long time and interviewed many, many people. And they were really intent on getting the right person, a person who is fully knowledgeable in the climate space, who is creative, who is innovative, who has broad respect from everyone in the community, um, who knows about finance, by the way, and who knows how to best optimize the impact of philanthropy uh, in the broader financial or climate finance space. Let's um, remember that he comes from the World Bank, where he was uh, for a long time, and so he has dealt with all of these issues from many different perspectives. And he is very creative, um, always has a good sense of humor, <laughs> and um, and is definitely an optimist about what more we can do. So, um, so very exciting, very very exciting to uh, to see Andrew take over the Earth Fund. The WRI has benefited enormously from having Andrew there. Um, And I'm sure they are now uh, pretty uh, pretty quickly finding the next CEO there, but um, WRI is in a very good position. And um, we're going to be very benefited. Everyone is going to be very benefited by Andrew's leadership over there.
1: Yeah. And I mean, just uh, just a, the more general point, I'd, I'd love to, you know, really um, give a shout out to the to, to the billionaires who put billions into climate philanthropy, because, you know, I've spent 20 years working in NGO, I think NGOs can do incredible work, they need to work in partnership with the whole rest of society, you can't kind of do it on your own. Uh, but you know, it took me a while in the NGO world to learn that the thing that makes things happen is money. Uh, and so, you know, you've got incredible philanthropists, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Chris Hahn, now Jeff Bezos, and there are so many other billionaires in the world who wish... This is a shout-out. This is a shout-out to the billionaires. Um, join uh, the, join the, the race to zero. Uh, put some of your money into action on climate change. You'll never regret it, and neither will the next thousand generations. Thank you.
0: Amen. Excellent. Okay. So, um, and actually philanthropy, climate philanthropy has more nuance in it than this, right? And we should unpack that at some point because mm, the yeah. way that yeah. the space has evolved between NGOs and philanthropists is... it has a lot of, there's a lot to that, right? I mean, one observation that I've made in the time I've been in the climate movement is that strategy development has moved from NGOs to foundations over the last 10 years. And there's good and bad in that. So I'm just flagging that. That's a potentially an interesting thing for us to talk about in a future podcast. I know how you love it when I just do scheduling on the fly, pool. <laughs> um, you didn't interrupt me this time, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we have an interview for you today, and it is a fantastic one. Uh, Today we are uh, bringing you a conversation that we had just yesterday, we're recording this on Wednesday, you're listening on Thursday, with Vicky Holub, the CEO of Occidental Petroleum, the Texas oil and gas giant. She is the first and currently only female CEO of a major oil and gas company. But Occidental, or Oxy as it's known, uh, is also the first US oil and gas major to announce their strategy to reach net zero emissions across Scopes 1, 2, and 3. Paul, would you like to explain what Scopes 1, 2, and 3 means?
1: I would love to. Clay, could we have some tiny little explanatory music? Listeners, Scope 1, 2, and 3 is the centre part of greenhouse gas accounting scope one is the fossil fuel your organization purchases and scope two is the electricity your organization purchases and those are both in your audited accounts easy to calculate scope three is everything else and particularly for an oil company it is the oil and gas that is combusted the product from the company scope three is the product thank you excellent that was a very good description i I like that
2: Nice, Nicely rehearsed. Very nicely <laughs> rehearsed, well Very clear. I think it's been rehearsed
0: for 20 years while running a CDP. <laughs>
2: so.
0: <laughs> um, so anyway, so Vicky joined Occidental in 1982. And so she's been there for obviously clearly a very long time. This conversation really delves into their strategy now to reach net zero. As I said, the first US oil and gas major to make that commitment. They have a completely different approach to other oil and gas companies in Europe. Uh, we delve into that. We delve into what that strategy is, where it makes sense, where we push back and where we question, how they're engaging with policymakers. It's a lively conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Vicki Holland.
2: Vicki, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. We are truly looking forward to this conversation. Um, I believe you and I um, have gotten into the habit of seeing each other or chatting in uh, in Davos at the World Economic Forum, which is not happening in its usual form this year. So, um, so I'm delighted that uh, that we are chatting here today. And again, thank you so much for um, for taking the time. Now, Vicky, when one thinks of a large or major oil and gas company, you don't necessarily think of a female CEO. And so, you know, my first thing is, congratulations, uh, you became the CEO of uh, of Occidental way back in 2016, which by now seems like, you know, dinosaur time, uh, way back then, how much has happened since then? And is it true, is it correct that you are still the only female CEO of a, of a major oil and gas company?
4: Yes, it is. Uh, I would say that you're right, a lot has happened since then. Uh, Coming through uh, a what was the beginning of a major downturn when I took over, coming through that and surviving it, not only surviving it but excelling because of our teams. And then we get to um, to what was just one good year, and then suddenly we're into this price war, then pandemic, uh, and then um, social unrest, and all sorts of things have happened. Uh, we did a major acquisition, and we. Did the transition of that, and and now we've we've really started a transformation of our company. So I don't think there are too many things on the list that CEOs see that that I haven't been through already. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't say I got a passing score on everything, but but it's it's yes. definitely been an education. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's been, you know, when, when I think of it, it's sort of like, you know, taming a wild horse uh, that that goes up in the front and in the back. I mean, it has been such an incredible roller coaster ride for you. And through all of this, Vicky, you have brought Occidental, I would say, to uh, a pretty impressive leadership position, at least among the uh, U.S.-based companies, certainly not uh, compared to the Europeans, but compared to the U.S.-based oil uh, and gas companies, you've brought it to a leadership position on climate by your coming out with your commitment to carbon zero targets across all three scopes, one, two, and three. And so I would really love to hear from you, how did you make the decision? Why did you make the decision? How did your um, investors and shareholders react? How did the public react? How how was that for you?
4: I'd say initially we started getting interested in, um, in carbon capture to in order to make uh, some of our operations more sustainable over time. And we're the world's largest handler of CO2 for enhanced oil recovery in the world. And the definition of enhanced oil recovery is when you inject CO2 into the reservoir, to generate more production from that reservoir. And the way that CO2 actually generates more production from a reservoir is that it becomes miscible in the oil and it makes the oil less viscous and more able to move to the producer well. And it uh, the way it sequesters CO2 is that CO2 um, helps to move oil out of the tiny pores within the reservoir where the oil is trapped and with the CO2, it uh, again lowers the viscosity and allows that oil molecule to move out of the reservoir. But the CO2 molecule then fills that void that the oil molecule has created. So the CO2 uh, portion of it stays sequestered forever in the reservoir. So this process of um, of using uh, CO2 for enhanced oil recovery, we've been doing for about 40 years. What our decision was... Um, back about more than 10 years ago, was that we needed to to transfer from using organic CO2 to using anthropogenic CO2. Because initially, we felt like anthropogenic CO2 was a long-term source, non-declining source uh, of CO2, and it could be at lower cost if we could get the facilities designed correctly and, and optimize over time. So that's what started us down the path. Then as we started to realize more about what was happening in the world, then uh, it became as much about sustainability with respect to our climate footprint as about the cost of the CO2 and the, uh, the sa- sustainability of oil production. Uh, and so I can tell you that, you know, your question was around how did our um, uh, stakeholders react? The employees love this and especially Our earlier career employees who who've now had um, questions about whether or not they should be working for an oil company. So this strategy to to use our core competence and to leverage the, the infrastructure that we have in the Permian Basin, which is a huge footprint of CO2 facilities, pipelines, plants, and all of that, to leverage all of that, to do not only what's right for our shareholders with increased decreased cost of CO2 and increased oil production but to also do what's right for the climate by taking anthropogenic sources. And then once we started looking at the anthropogenic sources, we thought we couldn't get very many companies to to want to talk to us about retrofitting their facilities with carbon capture. So we decided that rather than having to depend on other companies to agree to do that, we would look into taking um, CO2 directly from the atmosphere because CO2 in the atmosphere has more than doubled since... uh, Pre-industrial times, so we're now on this uh, on this path, and and I I would say nothing has energized our employees more than this strategy. Hmm. And initially, our investors uh, didn't didn't quite understand it, but but over time, they've realized that it's a benefit to them uh, as well as as um, a good sustainability course for us to take. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so, so let's go a little bit um, deeper into that, Vicky, because um, you, you use the term, or that would, would be the term, is direct air capture when you capture CO2 in the atmosphere um, and then use it uh, for well enhancement. And um, so, I mean, obviously, uh, there is way too much CO2 in the atmosphere, and that is... The uh, the cause of climate change and of all the destruction that we're seeing, but I I have to admit there is a very fine line, and I would love to hear how you how you walk that fine line because on the one hand you're saying yes let's take CO two out of the atmosphere, uh, which I think everyone would agree with, but then you're also saying and the purpose of that is actually to do um oil well enhancement. And so I would I would argue there are those who would say, "Wait, wait, wait, you can't really take CO2 out, which is the problem with climate change, and then use it to take out more fossil fuels or oil in this in this case, which is the uh, one of the major causes of climate change." So that's a very fine line there. And I would love to hear how do you walk that fine line? Um, I especially if um, if you're expecting to have some subsidies, government subsidies from that, how how do you walk that line and be able to give a compelling argument to um, to the public sector that they should actually invest in this?
4: So so you're right that the use of oil products certainly emits CO2 into the atmosphere. But what makes our strategy so interesting and unique and so important for the world is that when we inject CO2 into the reservoir to increase oil production, let's say for one barrel of oil, it takes more CO2 injected into the reservoir than what that barrel of oil will emit when used. So that's why this process actually is, Worst case, carbon neutral, meaning you have to inject the same amount of CO2 uh, into the reservoir as what the barrel emits. But more often, it's carbon negative because um, most reservoirs are going to require a lot more CO2 injection than what the oil production will emit. And that's to us right now, that's the biggest challenge we have is to help people understand that concept. If people can understand that concept, they're going to be really excited about what we're doing, because what we're doing is uh, there's no way to shut down oil production right now today, because if we did, we would have no telephones, uh, no, no cars, no televisions. A lot of uh, our medical products wouldn't be able to be made. So there's a lot of the, the the things that bring us the quality of life that we have today that would just stop immediately. So we feel like the gap that we fill in this transition is to make sure as we go through this transition that our oil is neutral or negative, because that's what it's gonna take. And the other critical thing about this is that using CO2 uh, in in an oil reservoir also means that you're getting more oil out of that reservoir. So if you look around the world, when um, in most reservoirs around the world, only about 10 to 15 to 20 percent of the oil in those reservoirs is ever produced. And so you leave 80 percent of the oil in the ground in those reservoirs. We can recover more than 70 percent, up to 75 percent of the oil in a in a in the reservoir, we can recover using CO2. So, why is this important? This is really, really important because the um to ensure that as we go through this transition, that the, the d- extended development that we have over time can be slowed down and eventually stopped. Because with our process, if we applied our process to every reservoir in the world, feasibly it can't be done, but just say theoretically, if it could be done, then that would probably be enough to supply the rest of what we would need in the world if we can get the transition right. And so we are the company that can make this transition happen faster by ultimately providing net zero carbon fuel to the world. And, you know, aviation needs it, maritime needs it, we need it to make products. And I feel like the last barrel of oil produced in the world should come from an enhanced oil recovery reservoir and not from any of these other reservoirs. And so we feel like that um, we will be able to stop development in places where it shouldn't be. Like there's sensitive places around the world where oil should not be developed, the environment should not be uh disrupted. We believe that getting more out of the reservoirs that exist today will help with that issue as well.
1: Makes it makes a, a, a lot of sense, Becky, but I, I'm gonna tell you I, I uh... I I interviewed Jim Mulver, who was running ConocoPhillips, actually back in 2008. And I actually quoted his own website to him in the interview. uh, And he was talking about carbon capture and storage then. ConocoPhillips was saying it's the gas business in reverse, and we know how to do that. And look, I I remember I once once wrote a, a plot for a film that never happened about how the world was safe from climate change. But the oil and gas industry was there, doing massive direct air capture and massive carbon capture and storage. But, you know, 12, 13 years, it's a long time. Now... I don't doubt. You know, you're you're brilliant engineers. You've got the best engineers in the world. You can kind of do anything. What's it going to take to get the taxation regulation the to get our, our 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 policy right so you can make make money saving the world? What's that going to take? And, and are you able to kind of make those laws happen?
4: I can tell you, we've we've already done a lot to remove some barriers. So the first thing in the U.S. is um, that we had to get a little bit of help. So we we now have the ability to claim some tax credits because of the Future Act that was passed um, um, a few years ago now. Senator Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota pushed that legislation through. So that is helping, and that helped us launch our strategy. And so then as we launched our strategy, um, we started realizing that that tax that. Tax credit was important. The uh, California Air Resources Board, low carbon fuel standard um, was important too. And so with that, we're able to make this, uh, this first plant happen. Now, it doesn't mean that, um, that we need that forever because what's happening now is a lot more companies around the world are starting to want to achieve the same thing. Oh, yeah. And so we're closer than anybody's ever been. And our plan is to build the largest direct air capture facility in the world in the Permian. United Airlines wants to get to uh, net zero by 2050. So they need offsets. So now we believe that we're going to be able to do this with, with partners who care as much as we do and who are willing to, uh, to go down a path to become carbon neutral. And that's how we make this work.
1: Okay, okay, that's a brilliant answer, but I got one more question for you. Have you got shareholders you can go to who you say, look, you know, we we know we need this capital and it's going to be, you know, 5-10 years before you see return on it. Can can you do that?
4: Oh no, no, we can't do that. We cannot do that. So, the other thing about us is we're a never quit company, but we're also a company that's pretty innovative around how to get things done. And we love to collaborate. So we are working with others to use others' money, <laughs> other <laughs> companies' money to build this because it helps them.
1: Okay, no, but it was interesting. Right. Like, I, also, I just, last last thing, it's almost a comment, and, and I know Tom wants to come in. It's just like, to some degree, you, you know, uh, I, I don't mean you specifically, but I mean just generally, the industry can't do things necessarily on its own. It needs the shareholders, but
4: yeah. Yeah, see, see, what, and with our shareholders, The way our shareholders have gotten on board with this is they know that it will lower the cost ultimately of CO2 for our enhanced oil recovery operations. And so it'll actually expand the the oil production that we can recover over time by more than a billion barrels. So that's the economic part of it that works for our shareholders.
0: Okay. No, the, the engineering prowess of, of, of the oil and gas industry is is remarkable. That's my, my family's all works in oil and gas, so I kind of grew up with some of this stuff. So it's <laughs> it's very interesting to talk to you about it. So I just want to ask you a question. I mean, I have to confess, hearing you talk about your strategy, um I'm I, I'm a bit confused in terms of how I should respond to it, right? Because it's so different, right? Most companies say, if we're producing this polluting fuel, we're gonna change our revenue models and change it in this way. Whereas you're coming at it from a completely different perspective. We're gonna gonna keep doing what we're doing, but we're gonna find this other method to mitigate the impact. And you've said yourself, climate change is a threat. We need to do what we can to get on top of it. We need to reduce emissions and you've made a distinction, not reduce fossil fuels, right? So you've created that distinction and, and that you, it's an interesting approach that you're taking, right? It's it's complicated for people like me that come from this climate perspective, but it's interesting and I'm keen to learn and listen. But one thing I would say that you are absolutely going to need to deliver this is public trust, right? Yes. You're going to mm-hmm. have to have stakeholders in society that trust what you're saying And believe that you are authentic in your attempts to really do something serious here. And you're coming from a legacy from a company. The the unfortunate reality is that the oil and gas industry, potentially including Occidental, have a long legacy of not being completely clear about the facts, lobbying against the reality of trying to do something about climate change. And so trust is low, right? So first, I would love to know generally how you rebuild that trust to the point where you need it to be. And second, I'm really curious, I mean, you've made a commitment to be transparent about where trade association membership might diverge from your corporate position, but you're also still giving significant money to people like Senator Jim Inhofe and people like Senator Ted Cruz that may have significant areas of overlap with your own interest, but we're never going to deal with the climate crisis, while they're just sitting there in Congress and stopping things from going through, so if you're going to be a leader at this most critical moment, no one else is going to step up and say they need to change their path. How are you going to make that happen? Because without that, the public trust is not coming back.
4: I, I'll just be completely transparent with you about this. Then um, you know we're a member, we're members of the American Petroleum Institute, and um, and I can say that. The main reason we're members of the American Petroleum Institute is because it has this phenomenal program for safety and offshore operations. That's why we continue to be a member. I can't say that we agree with all API says or does, Um, and I don't want to differentiate on any of that right now, but, um, but it's the safety is the reason that we feel API has some credibility. They have credibility around the all the way that ways that they have made our industry safe over time, because that's a collaboration of all the companies working together to make people safer and to help the in, the environment from an emissions in our operation standpoint. So we should respect them for that. Now, with respect to yeah. some of the people that we've in the past donated um, money to uh, or uh, for for their campaigns, I can say right now we're we're not doing donations right now, and we are gonna hold people accountable for their behaviors and what they do. And so in this upcoming cycle, uh, the next uh, time that we start to resume our donations, we will take into account what people have done and what they may or may not have incited. Uh, We're going to use some very thoughtful judgment around that. Um, And we have always supported people who supported our industry, but also we've aligned with people across the aisle too. uh, We have some Democrat friends that that have done more for our company than some of the Republicans actually, and I mentioned uh, earlier Senator Heidi Heitkamp. There's nobody in my mind that's done as much to uh, to help further carbon capture uh, than she has because she understands it. And she was a part of a program uh, where that was done before, and uh, so we support the people that we want to support the people that are doing the right thing. and And we didn't get it right every time in the past. Clearly. But but we're going to try to work harder to get it right on a go-forward basis.
0: Okay. No, that's, thank you for that. And, I, and-
4: I, I can tell you one other thing that we are doing, because you're right about it. There are things about our industry that I love. I love the technology, as, as you were saying, that's been developed by our industry historically. All the things we've been able to do, the places I've been able to work, I was able to work in Russia and Venezuela and Ecuador, in the jungle in Ecuador, <laughs> And uh, in Western Siberia, I was not in Moscow sitting in some plush place, assuming that they have those in Moscow. I was in Western Siberia <laughs> and uh, I was there in minus 40 degree weather. And, I, and I've been through a lot of things in this industry that were just amazing. I went, there, I went there right after the fall of the Soviet Union. So it was an incredible time. And I've seen what our industry can do right. But I've also seen what our industry has done wrong. And we've used the wrong excuses for the things that we've done wrong. And uh, now what we're trying to do is open our company up and make ourselves more uh, transparent in what we're doing. And so I would say we have a very good relationship working with the Environmental Defense Fund. We're a member of the um, Carbon Capture Coalition. Uh, We're a member of OGCI, the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. So we are trying to partner with those that, um, especially with those that may have a different view. Because... Quite frankly, if we don't bring people in that have a different view than than what we have, we're never going to get better. We're never going to mm. see the things totally that we're doing. So true. Wrong.
2: Yeah. So true. So true. Yeah. Th-
0: thank you for that. And, and actually, I, and I agree with your point, right? I mean, I grew up all over the world in remote places, and it always struck me that that people were driven by this kind of desire to go to remote places, which is such an interesting <laughs> contradiction between then looking for oil and the implications of that. But just one follow up to your very helpful response. You're, you, you explain you're a member of the American Petroleum Institute, and, and we've heard that from others as well. Do you also use your membership to push API to be more progressive on climate? Because they are also very problematic at the moment.
4: Well, they, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a change in API and in, in how mm-hmm. they are saying things and, and things that they're doing now. So API has changed and we do push. Um, and we're pushing our industry too. Uh, you know, we were one of just three companies that joined OGCi, but I can tell you, I was lobbying Bob Dudley after, uh, and that was a uh, Christiana. That first time I was at Davos and and saw Bob talking about OGCi, uh, I lobbied him to let to invite us to to come into API. And when he did, he invited uh, they invited Chevron and Exxon too. So we all three joined, and um, and that's been eye opening to me because, as Christiana said earlier. The U.S. was lagging behind the European um, oil companies, um, and we have been for a long time. But but the way we've caught up is, you're right, is our strategy is different. We're not going to to build and provide solar or wind. We are using solar, and we'll continue to expand our solar footprint in our own operations, but that's not our core competence. What we feel like we can do here is, as I said earlier, there's a gap that needs to be filled during the transition period because oil will be here for a while. So why not make sure that we're making it as low carbon and preferably no carbon as we can during this transition? Because we're not going to be able to stop oil. I don't know when we'll stop it. I don't know when peak demand will occur. But, but between now and then, we need to, to aggressively move toward a no carbon scenario for oil production and use.
2: Yeah. Um, but to get back to API, and you said you asked us whether we had noticed changes in the API. Definitely. we, uh, we it, The news that uh, the American petroleum industry is uh, actually moving toward, the Institute is probably moving toward a price on carbon, is very new for them. And this is total speculation, admittedly. How do you think API will be um, changing perhaps its positions, or how do you think they might be working over the next four years under a Biden administration? what What sort of changes would you expect from API?
4: I think API is getting much more progressive toward um, toward environmental across the board. For example, um, I believe that um, that we will be working more toward um, putting helping uh, EPA and other regulatory agencies develop legislation that will further regulate some of our activities, mostly around methane. It's going to happen anyway, and um, the way our company likes to work and the way we're trying to influence others is that it's best to collaborate with any regulatory agency that you're working with, and so I'd yeah. say that... In the U.S., in order to get the credits from the Future Act, you have to have an MRV plan. And an MRV plan means monitoring, recording, and verification. That plan exists uh, to ensure that you know where the CO2 is going and that you're measuring it, monitoring it, and keeping it in the ground. And uh, we worked with EPA to to help put that in place. Other oil and gas companies opposed it. But we wanted that regulation in place. We thought we we felt like it was best for everybody again to see that transparency, and and to us, it's all about collaboration. It's all about opening ourselves up so that regulators can really see what the real issues are, and then we can work to develop the best practices and regulation that 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 can achieve our goals. All of our goals mm-hmm. is to to eliminate methane emissions. Um, and it, but it's it's hard to do. And we're using best available technology today. We've reduced our uh, methane emissions by, or emissions by 40% over, over the last couple of years. But there are more things that we need to do there. So I believe that you know, API will certainly work, I think, with the, the administration on ensuring that, that we advance regulations in the United States.
1: And Vicky, just a tiny point. Thank you so much for that. But uh, just to say, a scientist I know who's very uh, good on all of this kind of stuff says that actually most of the scientists are saying we need biomass carbon capture and storage at the most enormous scale. That is to say we need to grow things and pump the smoke under, underground. Um, I know that's not exactly your plan pump right now. Pump the carbon. Pump the carbon. Thank you, the smoke. Sorry, that's <laughs> yeah. a slightly non-technical term. But seriously, uh, if, an, you know, it may well be that governments around the world putting enormous resources into biomass carbon capture and storage in five or 10 years. And I'm sure they'll be uh, knocking on the door of whatever oil and gas company is, is the expert in that technology, which looks like it might be you, but thank you.
4: Well, yeah, we, we want to be a part of anything like that because we have the, we have the skills and experience to make it happen. And so we do want to be a part of that. And we're excited about anything and we, and I'm sure you all know this, but most models show that without a significant amount of carbon capture, we cannot achieve our goal of limiting global warming to two. We have to have a lot of this, and we have to have a lot of things happening. That's why the the solar plant that we have in the Permian, when we built that back in uh, 2019 and put it online, it was the largest uh, solar facility powering oil and gas operations in our country. So so when we go, we like to go big. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so we... That, that actually I, and just an aside, our solar plant worked flawlessly during the uh, the winter storm that we just had
2: um, you're, you're so right about the scale right the scale that we have to reach and to that we would say scale and speed because it's not like we can wait to capture this you know 10 or 20 years from now it has to be like ASAP um, and the IEA has been pretty uh, clear about the fact that, uh, in order to get to the ambitious 1.5, which is the maximum temperature rise that would protect uh, human existence on this planet, we, we would have to capture 10 gigatons of CO2 per year. 10 gigatons, which is where, you know, I, I come back to your point about collaboration because there's no way that one single company, you know, with, with the most fantastic... Um, engineering skills that you have is going to do that. Uh, It's just uh, a very, very daunting task to do that. And as Paul says, a lot of that uh, can and should be captured by biomass, but we probably need uh, negative negative emissions, as we call them, or, or carbon capture as well. Um, so what uh you, well, we started this conversation talking about what has happened in the past five years, but oh my gosh, Vicky, how much is going to change in the next five years? Uh, probably the most, uh, the, the speediest change and transformation that this industry has ever seen. So buckle up for an incredible rodeo ride here. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Vicky. And, you know, we, we have this little tradition in the Podcast that at the end, we ask each of our um, interviewees, we ask them, so as you see toward the future of this planet and toward human existence on this planet, um, if there is a spectrum between outrage and optimism, where do you place yourself?
4: Definitely on the optimism side. I think the world is changing. I see companies changing, people changing. I think that uh, where I'm most optimistic is. Is getting um, a coalition of people focused on solving the the climate change issues. Where I'm outraged is I'm outraged at the at the social injustice in the United States today. Outraged that we can't yeah. be a leader in the world on on that. And so I'm adjust, you know really really outraged about that. But so I'm got optimism on one side and outrage on the other. And we got to do something about both.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with you. Well, thank you so much, Viggy. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for taking uh, time. Um, and are, are we allowed to say that your husband is cutting your hair these days? Certainly. Because it looks fantastic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can I borrow your husband? I've
0: got got crazy your crazy COVID <laughs> hair. This is just really... My wife is not letting me anywhere near her, so... <laughs> it's a high degree of trust.
2: Well, <laughs> kudos to him for a job very well done. Vicky, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank, thank
1: you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Cheers.
0: So... I mean, how amazing the people we get to talk to on this podcast and Vicky Hollab just in such an interesting position. And we said earlier in this conversation that we missed having interesting and thoughtful conversations with people who potentially had different perspectives than us. And really here was one, right? And I really enjoyed hearing this completely different approach on the work we're doing. What do you guys leave that discussion with?
1: I was really struck by her frankness in one particular regard, uh, she said and people will remember this but let's just see you know say it again i've seen she says i've seen what our industry can do right but i've also seen what our industry has done wrong and we've used the wrong excuses for the things we've done wrong and now what we're trying to do is to open our company up and make ourselves more transparent uh, 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 about what we're doing and i think this is this is really critical um there was, uh, well, there is a, a a very large lawsuit actually from the, a few cities, including the city of San Francisco and Oakland um, against oil and gas companies um, seeking reparations for sea level rise and the cost of building seawalls around San Francisco and the airport and such like. But the point is that the, I've read the, the text quite carefully and, and it does allege wrongdoing by the companies, particularly seeking to, um, you know, upset the debate uh about climate change and this is historically uh you know that the companies have 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 sort of funded disinformation but i detected that uh, she is keen to put any of that that may have been by her company or other companies behind and and she seeks to in your words tom rebuild trust and find a new basis um for uh, her, her company to move forward in in service of of the shareholders her customers in society and uh it, 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 she sounded like she means it and i hope and believe she does
2: i was um i was quite impacted um by yeah by her sincerity uh, she truly she, she's not playing games here at all she is very sincere about the choice that she and occidental have made and um i was struck why, how difficult it must be for oil and gas companies right now. Because if you're a coal company, well, you know, there's, there's little to speak for you. Yeah. Uh, but if you're an oil and gas company, then the, the horizon is so much more complicated because obviously you want business continuity for sure. Um, and the question is, how do you do that? Uh, obviously, you want to be on the right side of history, um, but the question still remains, how do you do that? How? What is the transition? I think most oil and gas companies have realized or are realizing that a transition is necessary, but do you transition the way that she has chosen by um, absorbing CO2 out of the air and injecting it into wells with all of the difficulties that we very frankly spoke to her about there, um, or do you transition by investing much more and increasingly more of your disposable capital into the new energies, into renewable energies? Um, you know, you, you could make strong arguments on both sides. And um, ultimately, what, what I'm... Almost guessing that for a while we will have some companies aligning around path A and some companies ar- aligning around path B. How long that will take, um, and how many, you know, path A1, path A2, path B1, <laughs> path, you know, there will be sub paths under that, but those are basically the two broad directions. Um, I I don't think it is um, I don't I don't think we can avoid having those two approaches move forward probably side by side until one gains much more traction and traction I would define a social license to operate for sure social pressure um, but also um, shareholder and stakeholder value. Um, stranded acid perceptions, all of those things will, um, will come to bear. But what a difficult position right now to be the CEO of an oil and gas company, knowing that you have to move into the future and moving into a completely unknown terrain
0: yeah I mean, it's 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 very um like you, Christiana, to see it from a compassionate perspective to the individual that sits in a different spot. And I think that's very much to your credit. I mean, it's I mean, really, for the first time since john d. rockefeller, these 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 CEOs, I mean since then, it's kind of been who can drill the most or holes in the ground and suck the most out, right? And um, the the game has been you know where is the oil? How do we manage the distribution, et cetera? Whereas now it's completely different. It's how do we manage a totally uncertain future which um, everybody is diverging on, as you said. Um, I thought that it was interesting to have somebody who, you know, she didn't try, some CEOs try and like draw you in with their charisma and their charm and they sort of they clearly have that different role. Very straight back, very clearly playing this. Very
2: straightforward.
0: I mean, kind of Johan Rockström- vibe, very different, obviously, but a sort of like, this is the thing, this is what's happening, here's how we're going to try and solve it, which, you know, arguably is, is sort of what's needed at this moment. I mean, God, it's difficult to say that their approach is, is I, 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 I said this to her as well, I find it very difficult to say that that approach is credible, just keep burning the stuff and then suck more carbon out. I have a really visceral reaction against that, to be honest with you.
2: Well, but but that's the question, right? The question is how long... Will there be um, a shareholder and stakeholder value or a a stakeholder support for this? Um, How long will there be uh, capital that is willing to be invested in this way? How long will it be perceived as a low-risk move into the future? It's it's clearly the moment is clearly not now, because if it were, she would choose something else. So she is really moving into a space there of, um, I would say, into gray space that that is clearly there for these companies. Um, And she's moving into that space, having decided what direction they're moving in from our perspective, very risky. This huge plant that she was talking about from our perspective, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, is this a big, huge stranded asset? Um, or as we used to call it in development, uh, in development world, is this a white elephant? But she's very sincere about yeah. it. Yeah. And she is very convinced.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And- and I mean, you know, I was going to say, I mean, I have a sort of visceral reaction against it, but, but you know, I also kind of miss that different perspective. And who's to say that she's not, she's not right on this, right? I mean, that that could be the biggest industry in the world, sucking carbon out of the air and doing the investment and the R and D in that. What do you think, Paul?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pretty unconvinced by uh, sucking a carbon out of the air, having a machine to do that, simply because uh, nature does it so much better. Um, but but I mean, just two things here. One is I was really struck, you know, to Christiana's point about it, it's not difficult, it's not easy to be in her position. Um, you know, I said to her, you know, do you have shareholders that, you know, can wait five or 10 years for return? And she said, no. <laughs> right. So, you know, there are no long-term shareholders. You've got to remember each time we go and, and talk to our financial advisor or whatever and say, well, which is the best performing stock? Uh, you know, we're essentially saying we have no interest in in long-term investments, right? Hmm. So we, we've got to recognize, we've got a responsibility to tell our pension funds or whatever, no, no, I want you to make those long-term bets. I want to take some risk on this. The second thing I would point out is that whilst I'm not a huge believer in direct air capture because essentially it hasn't been done at scale yet, I, I will reemphasize this point. The scientist, I profoundly uh, trust, uh, former uh, uh, editor of, of Nature Climate Change. Uh, she is uh, absolutely focused on biomass carbon capture and storage. That is essentially growing things really, really quickly and then burning them in closed systems and pumping the CO2 underground because we need to get billions of tons out of the atmosphere. So rather than direct air capture machines, biomass carbon capture and storage, maybe, she would say if she was on the show, I think, uh uh, an absolutely necessary emergency strategy, a kind of low-risk geoengineering, probably quite expensive, but maybe very, very necessary. And the point of my long story is that if that's true, then in fact the technologies that Occidental are, are developing may be very, very marketable.
2: Well, but here's here's the point, Paul. What what I what I think is so complicated about this equation is um, continuing to pump oil and therefore CO two while you're capturing it, right? To, to go back to my one of my favorite analogies, the bathtub that, you know, I usually think <laughs> of the bathtub when I think about a carbon budget. But basically what she's talking about is we will continue to fill the bathtub because we've taken out the plug from underneath and we are, you know, letting some water out. But Anybody knows that that doesn't necessarily empty the bathtub. That's the problem. You can't add more and remove. We have to stop adding, stop adding and remove. So I don't have a problem with the removal because science does tell us that we will need to remove much more than we even think right now. And I would definitely prefer for it to be Organic and um, and and let's say via forestation capture and storage, so natural capture and storage definitely much better uh, with respect to safety hazards later, etc., etc. But we will have to both remove. But the problem is using remove as the antidote to adding emissions. That's the problem. So if you stop adding emissions into the atmosphere and remove that's a much much better equation you can't add emissions because you're removing that for me is the problem
0: yeah and and the scale of removals that are necessary even you know without trying to equate that the removal equals You know, keeping the tap running in the bathtub are enormous, right? I mean, the IEA estimates that we will need 2,000 facilities capturing 2.8 gigatons of CO2, just to limit to two degrees. If we want to go for 1.5, we're going to need to capture 10 gigatons of CO2. So that's, you know, I mean, the idea that therefore capturing allows us to keep emitting really begins to fall apart.
3: But
1: Christiana is as ever right. Um, A very large scale. Uh, uh, bringing back of nature at something like it was before humans chopped it all down would actually uh, sequest that amount if it's robust enough to deal with changing climate. Yeah, lots of interesting conversations about net zero and what that means. Well, yeah, a And, and the,
2: the other thing, right, is that by capturing via biomass and by our regeneration of our soils and our oceans – By capturing CO2 in that manner, we have so many other benefits that come from that. Whereas air capture, direct air capture, as was explained by her, and then putting it into wells to get more uh, oil, from a social and environmental point of view, has absolutely no benefit. It has, as she well explained, it has an economic benefit because they can eke out more oil out of each well, but it doesn't have any social benefit as reforestation would have for those people who live around there, or environmental benefit as being able to protect aquifers, being able to protect local uh, local climate, being able to produce many products out of a reforested area, um, any natural nuts and fruits and whatever you have. Uh, it just does not make sense to do that kind of capture if it's not an overall positive, um, positive contribution to the challenges that we're facing. Yeah, And it's very expensive to
0: book. And it's expensive,
1: $600 a ton. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been... Just one more tiny thing. I, I, I want to call out to entrepreneurs. Call out to entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs of the world. We need really good measuring, reporting and verification of biosequestration. So please invent us low cost, highly accurate uh, measuring equipment for uh, storage of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, carbon in soils and biomass. That'll be a great business. Thank you, entrepreneurs. From now on, that's how
0: I'm solving all global social problems, is just by calling on others to do it. That's a great idea, Paul. I like it. Okay, excellent. All right, so this has been a great conversation. How fantastic to talk to Vicky. Great topics we get to discuss. We are leaving you, as ever, uh, with some music. Um, And this week, we have Alex Serra, a soul musician from Barcelona, whose hypnotic single, Everything Is Changing, invites us to change the way we view our immediate surroundings and focus on what we love. We will pass over to him now, and he will explain this song, why it's a song with a purpose. Thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoy the music. We will see you again next week. I believe we have another Race to Zero series for you next week. It's a very exciting one. Don't miss it. Thanks for being here. We'll see you then
5: bye bye hello my name is Alex Serra and I'm a soul musician from Barcelona so the inspiration for this song came uh, after a long journey I went traveling in South America and South Africa I was traveling for 4 years and it was one of the most inspiring times in my life and I felt super free and fresh, and, and it was beautiful, and, and then I came back home to Barcelona, and I realized I started getting a little bit sad, and I was wondering, why why is it that uh, I can't be in my own home and be happy, you know, and I realized that I was, in my mind, I was complaining a lot about the stuff that I didn't like about my my hometown, my city, you know, And I decided to to change it and to start focusing on the things that, that do change and the things that change. And there are so many beautiful things to appreciate. I think we are living one of the most critical times in the history of human beings. And it's critical because it's affecting the whole planet. It's affecting nature in ways that never before we were aware of. I think the pandemic has helped for something. It's helped to realize that we are all connected. Absolutely. What happens in China affects what happens in Europe, in the USA, in Africa, everywhere. And so it's giving us the opportunity to start learning how to be more sustainable, to start learning how to grow our own foods, how to become more healthy on our own, and this is information that we can start sharing with each other. And perhaps we start realizing that we don't need so much to, to live and to be happy. We got the tools. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's where this song came from. And it's a reminder to focus on what you love and what you appreciate. <laughs>
6: Everything is changing, but I can't see, cause I'm moving too fast, and my heart is aching, for I can't speak, no I can't find no words to tell you, how I feel. I know where to find you But I'm scared To leave everyone behind Show me how to greet you In every heart And move out of my weary Oh, the miracles will flow before your eyes, my dear. Oh, the physical dissolves into the sky. Oh. Inside all the courage you make me feel. Every time I wonder, you're by my side. You pull me back to what is real. Uh -oh. Oh, the miracle. Low before your eyes, my dear. Oh, the physical world dissolves into the skies. Come. Everything is changing And now I see All the colors that shine in me And the time will stop When we're diving deep And we grow together and Free
3: So there you go. Another episode of outrage and optimism. The song that you just heard was everything is changing by Alex Serra. I've been watching all of Alex's really cool music videos on his website and YouTube that he's made. Just really illustrative, uh, with just vivid cinematography and great music. I, it's been so nice just to watch all the places that he's traveled to and watch all the interesting people that he's met in, in these videos. It's kind of this peaceful and relational exercise for the soul while we slowly crawl out of lockdowns around the world. Um, And you should check them out too. I have links to his music and music videos in the show notes. And also, I should note, you can support him on Patreon. So go check that out. Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson. And our producer is Clay Carnill. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Marina Mansilla-Hermann, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. And our hosts are Cristiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet Karnak. And special thank you to our guest this week, Vicky Holub. So, thank you to everyone who's been leaving us reviews on Apple Podcasts. You know, we'll be reading some more on the podcast soon, and we might read yours. So have you left your review yet? If you go to Apple Podcasts, tap the stars, type us a message. Maybe we'll read it, you know, read yours next week. Here, Alexi, I'll read one right now as a teaser. Okay, here's a good one. (laughs) Okay, this is good. Uh, Neb45 said, um, Paul Dickinson should be in stand-up. I agree. Uh, Many laugh out loud moments on this podcast, as well as outrage and optimism. Absolutely my favorite podcast. Thank you. Uh, I actually forwarded this, a screenshot of this to Paul just now on WhatsApp. So let's see if he responds next week. Go leave your review. We're going to read some. Uh, at Global Optimism on all social media channels is how you'll find us. You can see footage from our podcast recordings, teasers, and trailers for things to come. Lots of excitement awaits you there. So follow us so we can stay connected. Okay, that is a wrap. As Tom mentioned earlier, there is a Race to Zero episode coming next week in your feed. So get ready for that music. <laughs> that pom-pom-pom. So get ready for that music. And the easiest way to not miss it is to hit subscribe. So we'll see you then.